This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. You know in the movie A Christmas Story when Ralphie finds the Red Rider, I can't go through the whole long name of it, but it's the BB gun, you'll shoot your eye out. He finds that hidden by his dad in behind the desk, that gift that you thought wasn't coming, and then there it is, and in all of its glory, forget about the fact that he broke his glasses later and almost shot his eye out, all of its glory, there it is, all you've ever wanted. It's that late thing, and, and it was made even sweeter by the fact he didn't even think he was going to get it. Well, Ontario Premier Doug Ford keeps getting things like that. Hey, look, hey, Doug, isn't, isn't there a package in behind that desk right there? But he keeps opening them, and they keep being wool sweaters. Randy Hillier, who used to be a part of the Conservatives, and now is an independent, gave him one when he had that picture posted with 14 family members and reiterated the fact that he's a COVID denier. And now you've got the finance minister deciding to leave immediately, even though he tweeted something about being an Ajax three days after he said he left. And leaving the country and then coming back. That's another wool sweater. Doug Ford doesn't want to be looking around his house anymore. You don't want to find any more wool sweaters. And all of this happens as small business owners are just trying to make it through. And we've got another lockdown that for, you name it, for a lot of small businesses, leaves them wondering, okay, what happens at the end of this? What do we do to get through this? What about my employees? Because there's no CERB money being handed out. There aren't the same sorts of things that we had the last time we went into a lockdown. It's been an awful 2020 for small businesses, for bars, for restaurants, for retailers. Let's kind of look back because Mark Seri did an amazing job, as he always does. You can read his blog at the Morrissey House dot wordpress.com i would encourage you to look up some of the things that mark has written and he wrote something just a few days ago and it published on december the 27th and it's called realities and mark's been nice enough to join us now to look back at some of the realities for people who did not choose to leave the country and go gallivanting somewhere with their spouse mark joins us now mark Let's talk realities. Hi, Mike. <laughs> realities it is. I would Oof. have liked to have gone somewhere else. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people would have. When you ask people, hey, how were the holidays for you? The word quiet comes up, because that's what we were supposed to be doing. We were supposed to be quiet. We were supposed to be staying home. At the same time, you're somebody who has been trying to operate a restaurant and bar through all of this. If we go back to when this all began, you're a guy who's a great thinker, and you think through a lot of things. You know what? I'd nominate you to be a part of our Ontario government because I think that's something they could be stronger in. But when you started to think through this, what sorts of things were popping into your head when it all began? Uh, When it began, you know, again, that that first thought was that it was just going to be two weeks. And... Um, you know, that was, that was the, the idea at the time. And then, uh, we knew it was going to be longer. 
Um, we kind of had the idea that it might be a couple of months. And uh, once we kind of got to that point, it was like, all right, so what are we going to do now if it does go longer than the two months? And when we do get reopened, um, how do we bring people back in and make them feel safe? How do we bring the staff back and make them feel safe? And what are we doing in the meantime to keep the staff uh, invested in what we're doing so that we're not losing them and that they're going to be able to come back when we are able to reopen. So there were an awful lot of moving parts. At that point, and people might not realize this, when you're operating a bar or a restaurant and you are employing staff, you would think, oh, well, you know, it's just it's six or seven people. How many people right. were employed at the Morrissey House at that point? Well, we're just a little place, so we only have about 32 staff. Um, and people are always surprised um, when I do say 32 because they they don't realize that we had that many uh, that people working. But when you had the hosts and the front of house servers and the dishwashers and uh, the prep people and the line cooks and, you know, everybody with three or four shifts a week um, or four or five shifts a week, um, it, it, it kind of and a full time restaurant seven days a week, um, lunches and dinners and then breakfast on the weekends. It certainly adds up to uh, that 32. So how did you manage that? Because you talk about in your blog three difficulties in the first lockdown, in the first closure, and number one was your staff. Number one is always the staff. Um, you know, I think uh, I think Richard Branson, uh, maybe, uh, he was the, the first one that I read that you had to treat your staff better than you treated your customers because that allows them the freedom to treat the customers well. Um, so the staff is always important, and like I said, not only – them getting through the, 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 the period of time that we were going to be locked out or locked down, um, you know, the CERB was obviously a great help for them. And for some of them, it was more money than they actually made uh, working, uh, even even some of them working full-time hours. Um, and full-time for us is a little bit different. Um, uh, you know, we don't have 10-hour shifts. We don't even have eight-hour shifts, really. So, so that full-time, that four or five hours, or sorry, that four or five shifts a week, um, is not the same as a full-time job for, you know, that 35 to 40 for a lot of people in the in, in what I do, the air quotes, the normal workforce. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, so uh, so the CERB helped. Um, and again, like I said, it was just communication with the staff and letting them know what we were doing, letting them know what we were planning, and most importantly, letting them know that um, we had the resources in order to make it through to the other side that there was going to be a job when they came back. That was, I think, mentally for them to know that they had a job at the end of it uh, was was a really big part of it. How hard was that for you to accomplish? Uh, well, like I said in the post, too, I, I, I had thought I had sold the restaurant. Um, I had been selling for the last year, and, and so I had kind of retirement funds set up. Uh, but again, looking at what happened in the States versus what's happening in Canada, um, we had a lot of benefits that they didn't have. And, um, you know, certainly the rent relief helped a lot. I was fortunate because my landlord um, landlord helped. And I think, uh, you know, from what we saw in Toronto uh, versus what we saw in the States, and, and I've got a cousin in Windsor um, that, that has a restaurant that didn't get rent relief um, from her landlord. Um, but I think from the people that I talked to, uh, most landlords in London were pretty good about it. We're talking right now with Mark Sari, and we are talking about operating 
a restaurant during lockdown conditions and really during the past year. Mark has the Morrissey House, and right now, what is the situation with selling? Can you sell a restaurant in a pandemic? <laughs> well, I don't know. I think uh, there, there are two schools of thought, I think. One is that I think uh, th- those people that are looking to get into it or those people that are uh, investors or people with money are either looking for a place that's closed um, or is about to close that they can get in and maybe work a deal with the landlord, uh, maybe get a, a better deal than they might have um, versus buying a place that's making it through, buying a place that um, actually has sales. Um, you know, do you want that success or do you want that failure? Success might just come at a, at a, at a steeper cost. That's all. Uh, but the, it is, it, it is, and has been off the market uh, since March as I figured nobody was really looking. Right. Well, we will deal with that another day, but if we look at the other difficulties that you were dealing with, food and the expiration of food, and then you also had having your guests who are used to coming and hanging out and all of a sudden coming and hanging out was not a thing. And your entire industry, I cannot believe the creativity that has existed in trying all sorts of different things. Have any of those things hit a jackpot in any way or or at least hit something sustainable sustainable i don't think jackpot's the right word um <laughs> again i i i'm always amazed at uh, like you said the creativity of restaurateurs and how you know like years ago when the smoking um bylaw started in london before the provincial act um the things that 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 people did to build patios to build um, accommodation for the smokers, for the non-smokers. Um, and, and this is just more of the same. It's something, it's a very resilient industry. And, and I think, again, like, um, there are a lot of thinkers in this industry. Uh, we tend to kind of do what we need to do. We tend to problem solve. We tend to, uh, uh, get through to the other side. And, uh, when I look at some of the places, like, you know, I always point to La Noisette Bakery over on Oxford Street. And from, from what they were to what they are right now, they've totally changed their business model. And I'm not going to speak for, for them, but I think it's almost for the better um, from what they've done. Um, if you get a chance to go out to Oxford Street and see them. Uh, for us, you know, we, we, we kind of did a lot. Uh, and some of it was directed mainly for the staff, like, uh, uh, there's a company in Toronto that did puzzles, and uh, they took a picture of your restaurant. They sold the puzzle. Uh, we donated all the st- all the monies that came in for us uh, to our kitchen staff, for example. Um, we ran a quiz uh, last Monday night uh, online that raised uh, almost three thousand dollars. Again, all for the kitchen staff, or sorry, for the for the staff of the Morrissey. So, little things that we do to help. Um, we sold our sauces. We, you know, brought out patio furniture, brought out our indoor furniture to the outside, and had the extended patio all summer, uh, which was which was awesome, and which showed that we needed a bigger patio for next year, and that we need the city to approve it, and that we need uh, the EGCO to kind of uh, make sure that happens next summer, because obviously next summer we're still going to be going through this. 
That's just it. I mean, we heard earlier today from retired General Rick Hillier that end of July, they're hoping that everybody who wants a vaccination can get one, but that's end of July, and we're more than into patio season by then. What about some of the added costs like rent or even insurance? Are we seeing changes in insurance? Yes. Yep, everybody, I think, has gone through that. Um, I know, again, pointing to Toronto, a lot of the uh, a lot of the music bars that we're talking about not being able to get insurance. Um, unfortunately, we haven't had that problem. Ours renewed uh, just prior to COVID. Um, so we were still okay, although it did go up about $300 a month. Um, and, uh, you know, the insurance industry is one that uh, I think we could start to look at. Um, I know there were a lot of... Uh, you know, when it first came out and Peter Fragiscato said, like, what can we do to help? And I think almost every bar owner was saying, uh, how about that business interruption insurance that we've been paying for? Uh, that would be great right now. That would help us more than any any government program uh, to kind of bring that insurance industry kind of into line and make sure that uh, we're kind of getting what we pay for. Um, and I and I, you know, there are far less insurance companies taking on liquor license liability. Uh, and I think maybe maybe the government could step in in that way as well and make sure there are companies out there taking care of us in that way. Uh, that's a big one for us, I think. It's a wow. huge cost. Yeah, no, I, we can't even imagine. I mean, you've just said it. Your insurance went up $300 a month even before yeah. all of this, and you've seen some of the rises in some of the other retail outlets or restaurants and bars. It, it's, it's wild. Mark, it before we let you go, as you look toward this next lockdown, you are open for a period, but how is this going to play out, and, and what do you see in 2021 as it starts? Uh, well, we are open this week only, um, and then we're going to shut down for the for the first three weeks of January and kind of reevaluate uh, because uh, takeout for us um, – you know, we we don't use the delivery apps, which is which is which is big thing. So delivery apps are great if you're just trying to put money in the bank, as opposed to um, uh, uh, kind of actually making any money. Um, and I know that there are some cases out there that people are actually losing money by using the the, the delivery apps. Um, so uh, we're just kind of going to reevaluate in a couple of weeks' time. And again, it's all right now. Everything is about planning for the for the for the summer. Um, you know, I, I ordered patio heaters in uh, in August that are still not in as yet. Um, and I, again, I've been trying to get the city to kind of uh, make some changes to the bylaws as uh, we need one specifically about uh, the interior capacity of the restaurant. You can only have half of that outside and we need that change um, uh, so that we can kind of start to plan our summers because this summer is what it's all about for us. This summer kind of kind of puts everybody back on their feet, I think. Well, here's hoping that that is exactly what can happen, that everybody right. starts to get back on their feet, because it's an industry that we were, let's face it, we can't live without. That's It's a fabric of our life, and it's an industry that has been hit so hard by this. Mark, thanks so much for taking the time thanks, for us, and all the best. I, I really hope that that back-on-your-feet line happens sooner rather than later as we hit 2021. Right. Thanks for, for keeping us in the know and, and for really talking about your realities throughout this entire pandemic. Anytime. Appreciate the, appreciate the call. All the best. Keep safe. Thank you, Mike. You too. That's Mark Sari from the Morrissey House. It's a fantastic place. 
And as Mark says, he's not in on the delivery apps or anything like that. He's trying to keep his staff going, having essentially fundraisers for the staff in order to help them out. Insurance costs pile up. We haven't seen really a, a whole lot of help in the way that maybe could have been there because it's it's expensive. And it's if you help out this part of the private sector, then where does that stop? I mean, you can understand it from that perspective, but... Boy, oh boy, this, uh, this, I don't even know where, where it heads in the bar and restaurant sector, but insurance companies, yeah, they've got to start to answer to why these costs and why they're doing it this way. There are a few things in life that just never stop. The sunrise, the sunset, sports, politics. 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, things are happening. And we know that there is a lot to unpack. And we're not talking about a sack on a back or a sleigh or anything. There's a lot to unpack with what is going on with the Ontario government right now. Before we welcome Ontario NDP leader Andrea Horvath to London Live, here is retired General Rick Hillier from earlier today on the current state of the vaccine rollout in this province. Uh, you know, we heard we heard loudly uh, from people this uh, past 36 to 48 hours. They want us rolling all the time, and we are. As of this morning, uh, we have 19 hospitals that are acting as vaccination sites. We will add to that in this coming week. We will be working straight through. We will not take any more days off until we win this war against COVID-19. We will not take any more days off until we win this war against COVID-19. Ms. Horvath, thank you so much for joining us. When you hear statements like that, what's your reaction? Well, you know, it's a bit of an eye roller, to be honest with you. I mean, COVID-19 hasn't taken a day off since day one. Uh, And anybody who thought that it was a good idea to take a couple days off in the battle is really not paying attention uh, to, uh, you know, to how quickly this virus continues to spread. And I mean, it's really disheartening and it's frustrating because it's obvious that, um, you know, as these vaccines sit in the freezer, uh, the, the virus is continuing to spread and people are continuing to get it. And so, you know, I'm just, I'm just really frustrated with this, uh, you know, with the situation that the Ford government continues to hold back uh, and act too late. And that's been what they've done from day one. And, of course, we're facing the uh, longer and deeper and wider lockdown that we have in Ontario uh, because of, uh, of the way this government has, uh, has handled things. Information comes in in all sorts of ways in this day and age. When it comes to getting information, where do you think the line of communication was missed that there were shortages of staff members? Because we've heard from a lot of people saying, I would have done it. Well, I mean, that's a, that's an answer for the government and, and for, for the general. I mean, let, let's face it. This, this task force wasn't even put in place until December 4th, a failure of the Ford government. Uh, so they had to scramble to try to put something in uh, place. And, you know, and I give them that, you know, that pressure. I get it. Uh, but there is huge communication breakdown, not only uh, in terms of all of the mixed messages that came in the last 24 to 48 hours uh, about what people were saying uh, and what the government was doing in terms of pointing fingers at whose responsibility it is. Ultimately, it's Doug Ford's responsibility. But, but more importantly, how, how do you have any confidence? How do we have any confidence? that this is going to get turned around. 
um, everything seems very loosey-goosey. I mean, there's no meat on the bone uh, in terms of going forward in, in terms of the details of the rollout plan for the vaccine. I mean, we don't have specific priority orders of long-term care and congregate settings. We don't know how many people are, uh, how people are going to be notified when they're eligible, um, you know, how uh, the proof of vaccination situation is going to work, work out. Uh, we don't have real um, specific bench um, benchmarks in terms of timelines and, and goals. I mean, the general, you know, gave a lot of really, can I say general, <laughs> comments today in his press conference, but, but certainly other provinces have been a lot more clear and a lot more specific uh, about what their rollout plan is. And seeing the failure of this this kind of initial rollout, I'm really, really troubled uh, and pretty worried about what's coming next or what isn't coming next. We're talking with Ontario NDP leader Andrea Horvath. Ms. Horvath, one of the things that the general said this morning was, I'm not in a race against other provinces to get the vaccine done, that they want to do it right, not the most quick. When you hear that, is that is it better to to do it right or is is it better to do it fast well i mean i think i think it's better to do it and not uh, and not close down for a couple of days which is what happened um and, and i think you, i think you can have both one of the things that this government has has lacked is a sense of urgency on all fronts i mean whether it's long term care uh, whether it's you know making sure schools are safe uh, whether it's getting a second wave plan in place uh, whether it's the vaccine rollout, everything has lacked urgency. So hearing the general now say that his plan is lacking urgency is really, really troubling. Uh, but, but you know, give us a sense of what's going to happen. I think the more important thing is not so much urgency or uh, accuracy. It's giving Ontarians the information they need to, to feel confident that, um, that there is an actual plan uh, and that it is detailed. Because if you don't have a plan and you don't have the details, then how do you actually measure uh, how well you're doing in, in terms of the performance? And, and so, you know, and not for me to measure, but for Ontarians to measure, uh, for the government to measure, uh, to determine whether they need to, you know, to, to change things up. And so I, I just find it really quite shocking that, uh, that this is how things are being handled in the, the, pop, the, the province with the largest population in our country. It just seems, uh, it seems uh, you know, lacking. Ontario NDP leader... Andrea Horvath joining us. Ms. Horvath, we've been talking about the Premier receiving wool sweaters, itchy wool sweaters, the kind that you just you wouldn't wear, and that this was one of them. This, this was an itchy wool sweater that you found as a gift somewhere under a chair. Another one is, of course, Ontario Finance Minister Rod Phillips releasing a statement admitting that he and his wife took a trip outside the country. When you heard that, give us your initial reaction. Well, I mean, you know, I, I couldn't decide whether I was shocked uh, or whether I was, uh, you know, watching the same movie over again. That's happened time and time again here in Ontario with the Conservatives uh, and their, the way that they're behaving. Look, I mean, Mr. Ford didn't follow the rules himself and, and he let himself off the hook, whether it's Mother's Day visits, whether it's going to his cottage when everybody else was told not to. Sam Oosterhoff in the summertime, uh, he had that big, you know, bunch of uh, folks over or had the big, uh, you know, uh, um, party at, an, at a restaurant, wasn't following the rules, and he was let off the hook by Mr. Ford. And now here we are again uh, with Rod Phillips. Well, everybody else is, is being asked to make 
unbelievable sacrifices. I mean, let's face it, we've just gone through Christmas and so many people had Christmas on their own, didn't invite family members over, did what they were told to do uh, and didn't do what they were were told not to do. And and yes, there are some people that are scofflaws, but when it comes to, you know, the finance minister of the province of Ontario, that he didn't know that it was, you know, sending a bad message to actually get on a plane and fly to a different jurisdiction and go on vacation when we're asking people to stay home. Uh, it's, it's absolutely it's stunning. And, and it's uh, once again, it's a mixed message that this government sends. We're asking you to sacrifice people of Ontario. We're asking you to really dig deep and, you know, and stay focused and, and, and give up even more. Uh, but when it comes to us, well, we're just going to do whatever we want. We're going to go to the cottage. We're going to fly south for a vacation um, and, um, you know, you know, thanks. Thanks for doing what we ask you to do. We have no interest in in doing it ourselves. I mean, it's just it's just so wrong and unfair, and and it just it creates a real sense of not not just disappointment, but um, you know, it, it's just disgust, really, at this point. The other angle on it is that the finance minister has stated that had he known that there would be a lockdown, he would not have done it. And that lends us to have to believe that as the legislature adjourned for the holidays, that that discussion wasn't taking place. Do you do you believe that that discussion wasn't taking place, the lockdown discussion, or or is that a viable statement? No, well, I mean, I, I have very um, I have very little kind of uh, trust in in that uh, that excuse, that explanation. It's been weeks and weeks on end, not not even just, uh, you know, since the, the lockdown came or the lockdown was announced. Even prior to that, the premier on his daily, you know, on his daily TV kind of stint keeps t- kept telling people, all we're doing is asking you to stay home. Don't go out. You know, don't do anything you don't need to do. You know, go out for work and go out for groceries and go out for essentials. But people, you got to you got to stay home. You got to not mix and mingle. I mean, how long has that message been um, coming from the premier? It's been coming for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks on end. Certainly, the, the, the finance minister heard that message. I guess he decided it didn't apply to him. Gave the premier another wool sweater after the fact, Miss Horvath. Thank you. To happen, you need to throw those sweaters out. <laughs> so, <laughs> Mr. Phillips needs to have some consequences. Donate them to somebody who doesn't mind wearing the itchy wool. Find somebody and say, boy, (laughs) have I got something for you. Ms. Horvath, thank you so much. Please keep safe toward the end of 2020, and we all hope 2021 is a whole lot better. Absolutely, Mike. Thank you, and you do the same. Take care. Take care. That's Andrea Horvath, leader of the Ontario NDP. And she sums up what we're all feeling. How do you defend? How do you? I do my best to straddle the line as much as I can. I really do in having conversations with you each and every day. How do you defend this? I can't come up with ways. I can't come up with ways to defend not getting going instantly in vaccinating people in this province. If somebody said to me, 3 a.m., 3.17 a.m., that's your vaccination time. I would set an alarm, and I would be there at 3 o'clock just in case I could get it earlier. That's me. So if we look at defending that, that's that's tough. That's tough, especially with the reaction that we've had from healthcare workers who would administer vaccines.
And then the finance minister, how do you defend that? How? If you can, please do it. Send me a nasty email saying, oh, you got to look at it this way. Please. Because right now, I have nothing. I don't know how you defend that. Don't do as I do. Do as I say. Give me a break. Anybody ready for a COVID break? What do you think? Need a little happy news? Something a little different? Let's do it. Let's do it. I have in front of me GuinnessWorldRecords.com. Not the book, but the online version. GuinnessWorldRecords.com. And this month, a new record was entered. And that record has an attachment to London, Ontario. It reads this way. The highest combined age of 12 living siblings is 1,042 years and 315 days. And I think we can amend that to now be, I'm going to have to do some math, to now be 329 days. So 1,042 years and 329 days. And was achieved by a certain group of siblings. Guess what? One of those siblings joins us right now. Please welcome Genia Carter of London to London Live. Genia, congratulations. Thank you, Mike. That's very nice of you. Well, it's really nice of you to take some time to talk to us. Let's look at when you realized this might even be a record. Did you have to alert Guinness, or did they come knocking on your door or one of your siblings' doors? Actually, my nephew in Baltimore sent them a letter, and that's how it all started. No way. So, wait a minute. Was he just sitting around thinking, you know, our family's pretty fantastic. Uh, We've got a lot of good genes here. Where did it come from? Well, that's exactly what he was thinking. I'm sure there are not too many families who have 12, who are 12 in the family and are still all alive with all the you know, so many different ages. How amazing is that? Okay, so let's talk age range. Your family, how old is the youngest and how old is the oldest? So I'm the youngest and I'm 75 and the eldest is 97. Wow. So there's That's incredible. two years. In 22 years, one woman gave birth to 12 children. Whew. So you had an awful lot of good babysitters growing up then. (laughs) Well, we lived in Pakistan. We really didn't have babysitters. But we had enough, like by the time I was born, there was enough siblings to look after the other ones. No doubt. Let's talk about life growing up. What brought you from Pakistan to North America? Because as you say, you have relatives kind of all over the place. That's right. Uh, the reason we came to Canada is because we, our family is Christian, and there wasn't much uh, opportunity if you were Christian. So my eldest brother came to Canada first, and then he slowly brought all of us. And over how many years did that happen? It can't have been... A small amount. It can't have been kind of all together. How long did it take? 
15 years. 15 years. And what part of Canada did you come to at that point? I arrived in Montreal in the beginning. Okay. And And Montreal to London. How did that journey happen? Well, when I lived in Calgary, my husband, Brian, was visiting some friends, and I met him in Calgary, and then he lived in London, so I came to London and we got married. Okay, so what took you from Montreal to Calgary then? Well, because I I figured I came from, from so far away, I would like to see Canada. And that time, it wasn't very hard to get jobs in different provinces. So Isn't that I went, amazing? We're talking with Jeannie Carter, who is part of the Cruz family, and she and her siblings have set a Guinness record for, and this one is, is one that, you know, that you have to do a whole lot of math for, but the Guinness World Record for highest combined age of a group of siblings, which, if I'm doing the math right, is 1,042 years and 329 days. Now, unfortunately, we've got a pandemic going on. Uh, You don't necessarily get a chance to be around everybody. Have you taken time to call everybody to talk about the record yet? Um, Mike, we Zoom every day at 11 o'clock. All of All the siblings? Yes. That's amazing. <laughs> yes, amazing. So every day at 11 o'clock, everybody gets together, and how far apart is everyone? Are, are you the only one living in London? That's correct. Uh, one lives in Switzerland, and the other lives in San Diego, another in Sudbury, and then the rest in Toronto. And when we get out of this pandemic, I hope you can have the greatest and biggest sibling family reunion that has ever been held. Thank you so much, Mike. Genia, thank you for taking some time for us. We really appreciate it. Congratulations to you and your siblings. People, are I've, I've got an, an email here. If I can just ask you one more question. This one has come in from Dolly, and Dolly says, Can you please ask Genia how her and her siblings have reached the ages they have. Any any life secrets that she can pass on? Uh, always try to forgive and forget and look to your siblings for support. And that's my best advice I can give. Well, sounds like you have a remarkable family. Genia, thank you so much for sharing some time and the story of your family with us this afternoon. Thanks, Mike. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Keep safe. Thank you. Bye. That's Jeannie Carter. Jeannie is one of 12, youngest of 12, so she is 75, and her oldest sibling is 97. And they now hold the Guinness record for highest combined age among siblings. That is tremendous. Over a 1,000 years. And going strong. The entire family meets every day at 11 o'clock on a Zoom call. That is the best. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.